0: Hello friends, welcome to the Rattling Good Life podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Samantha Rose Let's get started. All right. Thank you guys so much for being here today and for joining me on this inaugural episode of the Rattling Good Life podcast. Here today, I have Liddy Martinez. She's sharing her story of growing up as multi-generational New Mexican. She is going to talk to us about her connection with the earth and the seasons and the birds and the farm and growing up with her grandmother and living in the home with all of her family, including up to 20 children at one time. We have so much that we're talking about today. I want to make a quick note that I have not been in this podcasting business for very long. You may notice that the sound quality is not tip top. You may notice some of the reverb coming from the back, some of the background noise. And I apologize tremendously for that. I promise you that after the first couple of episodes here, that that sound quality will improve tremendously. I thank you for your patience. So after that little disclaimer, let's get ready to listen in to Liddy Martinez. So, have you gone to Bosque
1: del Apache? No. Okay. So, I'm going to show you something that. And every place. So, I had the privilege early in my career to be the chairwoman for uh, Leadership New Mexico. And during that year, um, I spent the year traveling all the corners of the state. I've been everywhere in New Mexico. And what I can tell you about New Mexico is that every single community. In every single community, in every region, in every place, there is a gem. And most people don't know what it is, and it's never what you think it is. But the person who lives there or who is from there, whose family is from there, knows what it is and knows where it is. And if you're fortunate enough to find that person and have them um, take you there so you can experience it, because it's more than just showing you Mm -hmm. or more than just visiting, because there's always the story that comes with it. Right. Um, it is really an eye opening experience to see that level of beauty uh in one place it just it always blows my mind because i kn- I thought I knew New mexico i mean my family 's been here for hundreds and hundreds of years and uh and we 've been mostly in northern New Mexico, but I have family that 's in the south and and i 've traveled all over, but never really spending you know chunks of time in any one particular place and once you do that it it becomes um, very apparent very quickly that that kind of, I don't know, it's, I call it a jewel, but it's, it's almost like, um, it's not even the right term for it or the right word for it. It's just some incredible, spectacular, never seen before experience. It's really an experience, but it, it happens to be um, connected to a place and, uh, and so one of the places that I encountered on, on this, and I, I had traveled by it probably a thousand times in my life before I actually stopped to, to see it, to experience it, is Bosque de la Pache. It's a, it's a wildlife refuge, and it is just off the beaten path between uh, or, or south of uh, Socorro, New Mexico, and it has become one of my favorite places on earth. And I go visit for the crane festival. So the cranes, I live on the migration path. And so the cranes stop in my backyard. I see them when they're leaving and when they're coming from Bosque del Apache every single year. My whole life is, is a rhythm of the seasons. It's not about time and so i can tell when birds are arriving and when they're departing and and what's happening you know in the earth and what's blooming or not blooming or i can tell you exactly where we are in time and space because of what's happening in nature and and those birds are such a piece of you know such an incredible part of who i am it's just i i i don't know it's hard to explain That's- but That's such
0: a beautiful description, though, <laughs> an, an expression of that. I have been learning the seasons and the rhythms of life myself. The, the daily ones, the weekly, the monthly, and the yearly. And, yeah. Um, and we'll talk. We'll, we'll we'll get a little bit more into this because um, when I, I find that whenever I follow those rhythms and I follow those seasons, my life goes so much. I get a lot more joy out of them. Yeah. And being able to appreciate those things.
1: Okay, so I'm going to stop this so you can actually see it. Let's see. Is it going? I, I'm going to have to put my glasses <laughs> on. I keep pretending that I can see. I just can't see anymore. It's just it's such a drag. But it's all right. <laughs> it's like I can't see the the numbers or the little icons. I can't see what the heck's going on here sea.
0: So if I could just describe for a second what Lydia is showing me here. It's unreal. You see this landscape of water and a marsh and hundreds and hundreds of cranes sitting around chirping together and then they all begin to take flight.
1: You can imagine standing there at sunrise. Oh my gosh. And they come around, they circle around right in front of you. That's incredible. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, it, you have to be, so it's in Socorro. It's two hours and 20 minutes from my front door. And you have to be there before sunrise. So we're leaving at the house at 3 o'clock oh in the morning God. to get there. And, uh, and to see the, these incredible, just incredible it's actually i i have it on my uh, uh these birds are just they're so gorgeous they're so uh, just amazing and uh here's a so those are the cranes and so you can only imagine when i get up and have and go get coffee and i have you know the the back of the of the of the property is it's landscaped in a way that is particular to particularly uh equipped for invitation of birds. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the trees and where the water is, and there's always food for them to eat. And it's just, you know, it's my own little bird sanctuary. And uh, and to look out the window and see cranes in your backyard, it's just an amazing thing. It's just an amazing thing. Do you feel like you relate so, to them then on,
0: um, like on a deeper level, cranes
1: specifically? I, I think so. I think that there's, you know, they're, they're definitely, birds are definitely messengers. I see them that way. Mm-hmm and uh and because they're always on the go they're always carrying some message backwards and forwards they they're going north or they're going south but they're they're so purposeful and they're so organized i really admire them mm-hmm. they're you know they have these small groups usually it's one or two that go out first they're scouts and they're looking for places where the group as a whole can you know stay together and land so that they are uh, scouts for the flock and then eventually a day or a day and a half later the rest of the flock comes out and they all just you know when they land and then in the morning when they're getting waking up and getting ready to lift and and it's that that golden color in the sky that pinkish you know if there's clouds it's pink it's just it's just an incredible kind of of scene that that is art it's really just live art seeing it all unfold and the darkness of the trees in the background that you can all of a sudden see the silhouette and, and the water and the ripple and the movement. Um, it's just an incredible experience, and I, I think no one slows down enough to pay attention to it. It's like, don't miss this. It's so important.
0: you know. So, two things. One, I uh, pick up feathers everywhere I am where I see a feather <laughs> on the ground. I have I have them all over the place because I started doing that, um, whenever we moved out here it was just randomly that I started seeing these feathers everywhere and I thought it, it was in a time when I was looking for some things and so I, I felt like the birds were speaking to me I really felt like they were passing along things to me and so I also um, for a while I had this uh, this raven that was outside of our door every morning I would get up to go crank up the car at 5:30 or whenever it was and and there was always this crane or this this raven and i would say good morning mr raven and he was always there and i know it was the same one <laughs> oh, I, yeah I, I know it was the same one and he was there for like a full like month he was there every single morning and we would have this exchange and i i know that i've seen him like around other places the same one i don't know how i know him. it was the same there and and so i've tried to be nice to them because i know they recognize faces and they recognize people and so i try to really like be kind and, like, extend, like, I'm extending my energy to you just to let you know. We're all good. We're all good, yeah, you're cool. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, as far as people not taking the time to pay attention, my sister is 10 years younger than I am. And I remember when I was just out of high school and I was traveling the world enjoying all these things, and I remember telling her, like, people never look up. Don't forget to look up. Yeah, And that was, like... I follow that on advice. sometimes I get busy doing things and I forget to look up. And, and I think it was actually whenever we were at Sistine Chapel, maybe, mm-hmm. that I looked up and that's when I thought about, don't forget to look up, because it's incredible. Yeah, you'll miss you it. You miss all the <laughs> so beauty. So much, you know? exactly. And, exactly. And so I try to remember to do that. Yeah. And so that's, that's a good reminder. Well, we have, well.
1: Um, right now, I think probably about maybe eight or ten days ago, we have mm-hmm. uh, a couple of... Um, bald eagles that are in, They're in the back It's the alfalfa field That's behind the house And there's this, these huge cottonwoods Because we live right on the river These huge cottonwoods And there's one that's dead That uh, is but is still standing That they love to perch in And uh, and I, I thought it was if The first time that I saw it So ten days ago uh, The first one One is much larger than the other I thought it was a raven Because they're so there's such a presence to yeah. them. And uh, and I thought he had, you know, paper in his mouth. I thought, oh, he's found trash or something, and he's, he's taking it. Because they're totally, you know, they pick up everything. And But I looked, and I'm like, oh, my God, that's a bald eagle. And they come every year, but it's always such a, a surprise to see them because you always think it's just this gift, right? right? You don't have the expectation that you'll ever see them again, particularly not out your back door. But um, but then it, they're so majestic. And then it was when it was clear that it was not a raven, that it was actually a bald eagle. And they circle around and come closer. And it, it is like such an incredible gift. But all of those birds, regardless of what kind they are, are it's just such a gift to be able to hear. You know, I can be in my house and, and you know, if I hear their song. I can tell you exactly what bird it is because of all the years that I've been paying attention and watching them and involved in the bird counts, and I I keep a garden diary. So every year, you know, as the birds start moving in, because the birds and and things that are happening around you tell you when it's time to plant. And uh, it's just a a really beautiful way to to live.
0: So speaking of that, then, I want to dive into this part of this. Tell me about life on the farm. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh, God, I wish everybody could do it. <laughs> <laughs> it is so great. It's um, it's a very early rise in the morning. Um, usually Rick is the first one up, and he usually gets out of bed around 4 o'clock in the morning, and he'll start coffee. And I could hear him... You know, trying to be quiet in the kitchen, which is always very cool. <laughs> <laughs> he lets me stay in bed. He's off making coffee. So when I finally get up, usually 4:30, quarter to five, I we're having coffee and and getting ready to you know start the day. Um, you know that we have over the course of our, our years on the farm, um, you know there's some. Things that we've added that have made it much easier, but I remember a time when the first thing we'd do is go break ice at this time of the year. You know, now all of you know the um, the water troughs are all heated; they all, all have heating elements, That's and so you, yeah, so you don't have to do that anymore. But but it still is is nice to remember. You know, the the frozen hands and pulling ice out of the water troughs, and 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 seeing the animals. You know, wake up to greet the day. It's always dark when you go out, and so you always see that first light. That is just a magical time, I think, for for anybody to be outdoors, you know, to hear things starting to wake up. Um, it's a lot of work, yeah. you know, managing the farm, making sure that there's always, you know, whatever feed you need. Uh, the chickens are scandalous at times. <laughs> they're hilarious. They're really funny. I like to spend a lot of time in the chicken coop with them just because they they each have a really uh, individual personality and uh, and they're there definitely is a hierarchy in the chicken, in the flock, of who's in charge. And and for the longest time, I had a little hen. Um, Her name was Bellbottom. She passed away last year. I still miss her. And she was like the ruler of the coop. And she raised most of our chicks. So, you know, we kept her probably about six different flocks that came in uh, every year, probably more than that. But, um, you know, we bring them there days old. And she would just she was the mama. She would just take over the flock, and she would, you know, show them the ropes and, and get them to understand, you know, the, the lay of the land, mm-hmm. and they would follow her, and she always slept on the top rung. She always ate first. She, I mean, and she was this big. She was a, a bantam, so a little tiny hen, but they all, I mean, she was the mama. Everybody, you know, cleared the way for her. She was just like the the queen of the coop. It was just amazing to see because all of the rest of the birds, including... Um, the roosters, which can get aggressive, especially if there's more than one, uh, but they, none of them messed with her. It was just really wonderful to see that kind of interaction in, in you know, in nature and in, in, in the animal kingdom. I guess um, I have a, a little calf who was born last Christmas. Uh, her name is Novella, and she's a superstar on Facebook. <laughs> Everybody loves her, and when they get mad if I go too many days without. Posting a picture of her. Where's <laughs> Exactly. Okay, <get> it. <laughs> so that's kind of fun, uh, and there's always a, a long, long list of things that need to get done. Yeah. So you know, it's it's a constant rotation, and depending on the time of the year. Right now, um, you know, from about the fifteenth or so, middle of October until Valentine's Day is the only time of the year where Rick and I actually get what we would call rest. Nobody else would, would categorize it that way, but, but for us it is because it's really when things slow all the way down, and, uh, and it's planning. So in my head right now is uh, a whole array of items and, and things that need, are going to need attention in the next 45 days. Uh, 45, all, days
0: That's... Uh, 45 days out. 45
1: days out. So okay. all of the seeds... That I have in the queue, uh, I've got you know s- orders of topsoil that need to go get picked up. You know, my husband will take the dump truck and go get them. Uh, we've moved some of the um, of the gardens, uh, so there's you know some you know tilling and, and you know fertilizer that needs to go in place. We've got a holding area where I've been you know hoarding all of the um, fertilizer from the chicken coops because that's what goes in my dahlia beds. Um, getting you know all of the orders for uh, bone meal and everything that i 'll need is has already been ordered and is either here or in route and uh, but in my head i 'm trying to think about because we 're rotating crops about where what is going to go you know where and how much of it do I need to plan for, and how can I accommodate all of this in my greenhouse and where do I need to move the water because we 've got water tanks that we that are staged all over the farm for the garden spots. Right. So all of this is happening in my (laughs) head. I'm already like, my God.
0: (laughs) That's quite a... What I'm wondering is how you handle all of that while still holding your position. My job? Yeah, like (laughs) at, at Enterprise.
1: I guess part of it is that I've never known it to be any other way. It's just I was raised on a farm. And so, you know, that was just always a part of our lifestyle Uh, We always had a garden. We always had animals to care for. We always produced uh, and grew the majority of the food that we consumed my whole life. So to not do it would be very weird. I wouldn't know what to do it (laughs) myself. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's just very unusual. Um, So I think that, you know, when you already have that as part of, you know, just your regular normal routine, you know, then you... I don't have more hours in my day. Everyone always asks me, how do you get all this stuff done? It just, but I'm highly organized. There, I don't. I guess
0: you'd have to be. And
1: I don't waste time. And it really upsets me if someone wastes my time. Uh, I'm always on time. I'm never late for anything. <laughs> and uh, and when you know you can't, when you give me a block of time, I'm there for that time, and you have me a hundred percent. But when we're done, I'm out the door, and my brain is already thinking about the next thing and planning for the next thing. And so it can get a little bit uh, aggravating for some people mm-hmm. who don't run on a schedule. Mm-hmm. And my family is always late.
0: Oh, no. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Which I think is why I kind of overcompensate for their lateness yeah. uh, and why I'm so timely. Um, it used to really bother me when I was a little kid and couldn't you know, drive or right. control what was going on that we were always late for everything. And uh, so as soon as I was in control of my own time... Uh, that stopped happening. It just never happened again.
0: Well, because I was just wondering, like, do you think that your timeliness is directly related to growing up on the farm? But if your family's always late, then you know, like, you have that, that contradiction there, I guess not.
1: Yeah, I guess, I guess it. I mean, there's some parts of it, like, so because of the way I was raised. So my grandmother was in our. I never lived apart from my grandmother my entire life until I got married. In fact, I shared a bed with her and uh and my so my grandmother took care of the house and the gardens and the farm and my mother worked two jobs from the time that I was born. So my mom was the was the breadwinner, the earner. She so she was gone and and seeing her and what she did, I think is where, you know, there were, I, I had kind of this split life of this live by nature role model that my grandmother was. Versus my mom, who had two jobs and and everything that needed to get done, and she always got it done, was really an amazing thing. Was probably why when there were like events and things that that's the the lateness where that comes in. That was not all, you know. That was a secondary priority. Going to a party was not a priority for my mother because going to work was mm-hmm. the priority and making sure that you know the bills got paid and all that right. stuff got done. Interestingly enough, though, my sisters and I, so there are three girls, three sisters, uh, my sisters and I were always highly involved in our school. And so we were always, you know, in band and theater and, you know, drama and, and doing all kinds of stuff that, you know, Girl Scouts that required us being in certain places. And even if it wasn't my mother, we were always there wherever we needed to be. So somehow there were enough hours in the day for my mother to get everything done that she needed to get done, and so there's no excuse for me. <laughs> there's just none. Uh, if she could do it, certainly I can too. Oh, wow, she seems
0: like a superstar,
1: though. She, she, was pretty, she was pretty amazing. She is pretty amazing. Even now, I mean, my, my mother is uh, 84 years old, and, uh, and still, you know, I, uh, my family will ask, how's your mom? I'm like, well, you know, when I catch her, because she's always <laughs> on the go, you know, her and my dad, thank God I still have them both. My dad is 90. He still drives, which oh scares me to death. But, um, you know, it—it it, uh, it, they're still out doing their thing, you know, and they hide. They're secretive. You know, the two of them together, it can cause chaos for everybody else because they will take off to Albuquerque. I'm like, I've told them a thousand times you have no business driving in Albuquerque. I, well,
0: to be honest with you, between here and Albuquerque, I... <laughs> I can hardly not fall asleep just to, you know, and so 90 years old. Driving yeah, all the way out there. driving
1: out there. So willingly. so they're, you know, they're, they're very active. Uh, both of them still as sharp as a tack. I mean, they, my mom will tell you she remembers everybody's birthday for everybody in the family. It's just really amazing. I can't remember anything. I, so we all have our skill sets, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not one of mine. But, um, but that whole time thing. I think it's just the, a level of appreciation for how short amount of time we have on Earth uh, that partly drives it. I, I'm engaged in things that I am passionate about and that can say no very often. I, if if it's something that does not improve the community, improve the situation, does not add value, don't ask me about it. I'm not, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to say yes. Um, so it's about making those decisions too, about really identifying and understanding what is priority in your life? And, and that I learned from my mother. I mean, even though she knew that all the bills needed to get paid and she had to be at, you know, both of her jobs without fail, she also knew that, you know, the things that were important to us uh, were also a priority for her. And so, you know, you learn how to manage those things.
0: That's amazing. So you, you were saying that you, you and all your sisters, you all were always involved with things in school. What, what sort of things did you do?
1: Oh gosh. I <laughs> my grandma used to say she had a saying that said, donde no te somas temetes metes that, that was like wherever you don't glance you're like deep both legs in. Uh because I was interested in absolutely everything. Uh I was highly, highly involved in school. Uh band was probably the first thing that I got involved in. No Girl Scouts I guess and uh and being involved in that. We had a great Girl Scout leader And uh, so we always had, you know, all kinds of uh, activities that were going on to earn our badges and and just hang out with the girls, Um, you know. And and I think a lot of the the stuff that I loved was always music based. So I started playing saxophone when I was in third grade (laughs) and and I loved it. I also can play um, the flute and a little bit of the clarinet. But, you know, we were also involved in choir. Uh, I was also a cheerleader. Um, you know, it, it just, whatever kind of came around that, you know, f- the drama club, I mean, it was just, I thought it was always, I always try to say yes to stuff because it's just another opportunity to learn something new. And I think if I had to tie down what, you know, who I am, I think that was one of the questions you were we talked about. It's like I, who, who is at the core is a student. I love to learn new things. And uh and so I, I have a hard time letting go of things that I really love and so I just end up being very much like my grandmother who was a Renaissance woman who did and loved all of the stuff that she did in her life. Or she knew about animal husbandry. I mean she really understood about raising animals and because they were being raised as our food, for her that was the highest level of honor that you could bestow upon another, you know, entity, another, you know, living. Uh, animal was that they were giving up their life for you, and that meant that that demanded respect, and so you treated these animals with the utmost respect, and uh, and made sure that they were always happy and well fed and clean, and and sh- and being shown love, and that's exactly what we still do.
0: That's beautiful, you know. As as someone who uh, I don't eat meat, you I know. know and, and I someone know. who Doesn't, but but. You, you know i um i I had some friends back in Georgia who also owned a farm and and they grew and or raised ninety percent of what they ate as well and um you know someone asked him, how can you raise animals and then eat them? you know how can you raise them from the time they're little?" and he said, well, how can you you know not know the animals that you eat and so there's those two schools of thought there and but for your grandmother to say that about how you know that's the highest honor that another, you know, living being can give to another, you know, being is their exactly, life, their life to sustain the other's life that's that's a, a, a wonderfully poetic recognition
1: yeah. I think and, it, and it's also, I mean, it wasn't just the animals though, of course, that was the most obvious because it was so hard being a little kid and raising lambs to, to see the slaughter mm-hmm. but it's part of living on a farm I mean, right. you learn how to manage that but it's the earth itself. I mean, when we were, you know, planting or, you know, harvesting things in the wild, I mean, we'd go and pick, you know, uh, wild parsley called chimahá, very, very prolific in the hills in uh, northern New Mexico. Uh, that's an herb that you use for certain uh, foods that you make. and uh, And it was always with a prayer on her lips. I mean, it just, that's just how we you know, lived was that we were incredibly grateful for everything that was given to us or what we, what we had. And, and living a life like that makes you feel, um, a level of appreciation that I I wish I could see more often in, in the world, you know, just being very appreciative of, of the opportunities that come across your plate and, and recognizing them for that. I think sometimes because they're, Disguised as work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are hesitant, but uh every time that there's an opportunity that comes across the table, it's an opportunity that is going to help you grow in a specific way that the universe is sending to you. Right. I mean you should respond. And not that you say yes every single time. I mean, I, I already said I do say no. Because mm-hmm. I've I've learned to say no. Because I only have so many hours in the day, I recognize that, and I—they are very full.
0: It sounds, like
1: that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that doesn't mean that I say no. All I mean, I still say yes a lot, and I'm involved in a lot of things because it's important. You know, yeah. s- there are things that are really important that you need to engage in. You know, being involved in the community. I can't. I can't fathom how somebody cannot volunteer. I don't understand that. And I struggle with that. It's something that I think is um, almost a requirement when you're sharing error. Wow. Um, that's, so how do you,
0: where do you, okay, where do you volunteer? I, I was going to say, <laughs> where do you find the time, but clearly you make it since it's a priority. It is a priority. So where do you spend your time doing
1: that? So I've, I volu- I've volunteered in, in probably most nonprofits uh, in known in northern New Mexico over the course of my life. And I started really, really young. Right now, I volunteer. Uh, I'm, I serve on the board for the United Way that serves both Los Alamos and Rio Riba County. And I also am a board member of the uh, Think New Mexico. It's a think tank for New Mexico. I've been on that board for an, uh, about a, I don't know, more than a decade, a long time. <laughs> and, uh, and I also am a new member about two years in uh, for the Santa Fe Opera. And uh, and so all those are the three things that I dedicate my uh, my service to. But there are also others that end up getting you know a piece of uh, of work or or thought or consideration from me over the course of the year um, because they come up and it's important. Uh, the Secchia Association is one of them. Oftentimes, my husband is the um, treasurer for our Secchia Association in uh, in Hernandez and uh and so he you know we just hit, finished billing, and so we spent a weekend where you know I was uh you know merging mail merging and and doing labels and helping him get the billing statements out and helping him you know keep uh track of you know what's what and 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 showing him he's he came from a, a career of being in uh the auto industry for about almost forty years, and brilliant i mean just uh I can't even imagine how they're managing without him, to tell you the truth, but just brilliant in in his ability to, uh, you know, do that work, manage that work, and inventory control, which is a key aspect of that. Uh, But he didn't have almost any experience in, like, just regular Microsoft Word, that kind of stuff. His computer work was very, very much the systems of the auto auto parts in uh, dealerships. So he's learning because he's just retired two years now. So I've been teaching him how to run his computer and, and work spreadsheets and develop, you know, formulas and, and uh, make his life a little bit easier. And he's a quick study.
0: Also ever the learner. I guess. <laughs> also. Also.
1: also. Uh-huh. So, I mean, our lives are full. Yeah.
0: But, uh, what but is the Ezekiel
1: Foundation? So that is uh, the the governing entity that regulates water usage for all of the ditches. And so there's a bunch of them, every community. It's a community ditch, and the the acequias are older than the United States of America. Our acequia dates back to the latter part of the 1500s, and it's been in use continuously all of that time. And the parciantes, which are the individuals who are water rights holders, are members of that acequia. And so how we share the water and how it's used for whatever purposes, some people are... You know, farming, obviously, some of them are using it for water for their animals. You know, some people are using it to water their gardens, you know, their flor- flower gardens or lawns or whatever, but it's their water. And, and so there's dues that are paid, and there's a certain amount of water that comes down through the state engineer that is allocated to each of the acequias that we manage, and we make sure that everybody gets their fair share. So it's a lot of work. Well,
0: that's a lot of responsibility. A
1: huge responsibility. And... uh and always a fight. You know, New Mexico has been in water fight yeah. for more um, more than 400 years. It's still a water fight. And uh, so I feel for my husband because when he retired, he thought he was going to retire. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe he didn't. Maybe I was the only one who thought that.
0: I don't know. Retirement on a field doesn't sound like <laughs> retirement at it all. It just means, you know, you
1: just pivot and do something else. Uh, but, you know, he, the work that he's doing is so important. To the community and to our culture. It's yeah. just, it's critical. And so when he needs help, I help him. And if, and you know, when that's how it is, you know, in, in the year is there, if there's something critical comes up and I'm, I can help, I try to help if I can. Wow.
0: You say it's really important to your culture. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What do you mean by that?
1: What I mean by that is, is that, you know, the Spanish and the and Native American communities, um, have lived side by side and, and learned how to, um, you know, be in a, in a community or in an arena where, you know, it's, it's not easy. I mean, it, it's difficult because we're, our ideas about how water should be used are very different, but they're also very common. You know, we, uh, the Native American community and, and the Hispanic community are almost the same community, but not exactly, Because we've intermingled, and so I mean, if if you look at my DNA, you know I'm 33 percent Native American, and that's not a big surprise. Anybody who has been here or whose family has been here for any length of time, it's the same. I mean, that's pretty common. But I wasn't raised in on on a pueblo or reservation, and I am not, uh, you know, familiar with the with the intricacies of their custom or their culture. Mm -hmm. Um, but I am part of it. And so I have a great deal of respect for it. Uh, and I think that that also holds true from them uh, to my community, to the Hispanic community, which is where I was raised. I could have probably been raised in the Native American community and seen it from a different perspective just based on my DNA. But um, but because we are one family and we have, you know, there's been, we, we live next to each other. We're not, in you know, intermingled together so much. Uh, and our cultures are different. You know what we what we believe, uh there's common space because they're highly most uh Hispanics and, and uh, Native Americans uh are Catholic. Not all not all, but a lot, and so we share a common faith. But uh but how we celebrate each of the um you know, cultural aspects of, of being, you know, Hispanic or being Native American are different. I mean, a couple of weekends ago, my husband and I were invited to go and see the deer dances at Hemis at Hemis Pueblo. And we had friends there. Uh, it was the first time we'd ever been. It was incredible. I felt this, I can't even explain it. I can't even describe it. I mean, the drum was like in my body. Like I could feel my whole body reverberating with a drum beat. And, and the dances were just, you know, uh, recognizing all of that spirituality and, and what is reflected in nature, which we were talking about earlier, was vis- visible in the dance. So I was very, very connected to what was going on and what was being displayed and, and, and that, you know, connection to the earth. But I'm not Native American from the Native American's view. Mm-hmm. You know, I was there as a visitor. I, it was very clear that that was my role. And so I was very respectful, and I stayed within the lines. But, boy, I wanted to just run out there. (laughs) I mean, I really did. You know, it's just I was very respectful, and I was very grateful for even being included because no one had to invite me. And I know they're open to the public, but it's such a private space, and I have such a level of of, uh, admiration for their ability to keep their culture and and all the cultural aspects of of what they believe and what is is critical and and important to them alive and and living you know visible for others to be able to even share in Um, It, again, demands respect. I mean, I, I totally respect that. And it's the same as as individuals who come and visit us when it's like Holy Week and we're getting ready, you know, for Easter. And we have these rituals that that occur in the Hispanic community about, you know, we don't eat meat that week. There's very special dishes that are only made during that week. And so that is part of our culture. And it, it defines who we are, you know, how we pray and how we eat and, and, and what, you know, how we raise our children and the stories that we tell. That's all part of our culture, and it's in our culture, the Hispanic culture, my culture. Is similar to what is happening uh, in the Native American communities, but they have their own stories yeah. and their, you know, their own rituals and their own perspectives, and so we respect that for each other. But we still, we still share the water, which is getting back to the water. Yeah. You know that yeah. both water has a very, very deep uh, connection to what we do because you know we're, we're we're farmers. Right,
0: water is life.
1: Water is life, and uh, and so while we all know that there's, you know, it's a, a very special you know gift it's for everyone i mean you can't hoard it you, know, you can't not share it i mean you can't watch your neighbor's flock or or you know their herd die of thirst when yours are drinking as a human being you can't do that and so we devise ways to make sure that we can share what we have and have an equal portion for everyone who, you know, should partake. And that's what the acequia does. And that is very much part of our culture because it is a farming culture. You know, when we when we are talking about what our families were doing 400 years ago, Native Americans and Hispanics were both farmers. And that's what we did. I mean, my family, they were sheep herders. They were up they lived a little further north. And uh and so sheep are still very much a symbol of what was, you know, the livelihood of my family for hundreds and hundreds of years.
0: So you say, you know, you can't, as, you know, a neighbor, you can't watch your neighbor's flock die of thirst whenever yours is drinking. And you've talked a lot about mutual respect and understanding. And I'm just wondering if you find yourself at odds with the rest of the world, <laughs> with that being so much a part of who you are. I mean, maybe it's a white people that, I don't know, but I grew up in a very myself-first kind of, you know, world. And um, so I do know that in, the, in the, a lot of situations, it's really difficult to be that person. It, it is. is you know. it,
1: it's a constant conflict, particularly when you're dealing with attorneys, which, <laughs> which is unfortunately where the space we find ourselves in a lot of the times. Uh, it's hard to explain to somebody who hasn't lived it, the importance of it. I could not imagine that happening to somebody else's farm. To, you know, I've watched. You know, it, it, there I have family that lives in the Poquoson Valley, and they've had a lot of water issues uh, in that in that area. And uh, and my aunt's neighbor planted a crop of corn. I, I'm guessing it was probably ten years ago. In my brain, it seems like yesterday, but it was probably ten years ago or so. And, uh, and it was growing and flourishing, and it was, as, it was taller than she was, and then there was no water. And literally, we watched her crops die. There was just no way to take care of them. And it's the worst possible thing that you can see, understanding how much time and effort and energy it takes to plant that seed and know what's coming. I mean, it's a ton of work. Most people won't do it. Yeah. You know? it's just It's a lifestyle that you choose. And, and it's the, uh, it's work that, you know, has to get done every day and, uh, and to work that hard and get that far and then watch the crop die. It's the, it's the saddest thing you'll ever experience. I mean, it was terrible and it, but it teaches you the importance of water and the importance of sharing. And so you can't not see it from all those perspectives. And, you know, there was one year that we did not grow anything because my neighbor needed the water for his cows. And we just let him have our portion of the water. We didn't have cattle at the time. We had just bought the property, and we were putting up fences, and we were securing, you know, different areas, and and building barns, and uh, we had chickens, but we didn't have any cattle yet. We were we were planning on purchasing cattle, and uh, but we didn't do it. And it was right when the drought hit really really hard. This is twenty years ago, and uh, and we just told him, you know, when it's our turn for the water, because everyone is on a schedule. You you can fill, you know, that he had a a watering hole for his cows. You can fill the watering hole with our water so that his cows wouldn't die. And, you know, I mean, he's our neighbor, (laughs) you know, and we take care of each other. It's just how it is. You live in in a society, we live in a society that has been very, very uh, uh, dependent on a bartering system that is still in existence that people don't necessarily see or recognize. It's not visible to everyone. But I have eggs in my car that I need to deliver at the end of the day to a friend of mine because we trade. I I send her eggs every time I can, you know, think of it and and have the time to get out there. She lives in Embudo. So, you know, I called her, texted her last night and said, you know, what time are you going to be home? I got eggs for you because she makes tamales for my family for Christmas. That's the exchange. And it's happening all over New Mexico. And like I say, it's not visible to everyone, but it's been that way for more than 400 years. You know, I grow corn, you grow beans. You know, we're trading. That's how you survive. And so when you're raised in that way, and particularly when you're raised on a farm, it never, ever leaves you. Yeah. You're very aware that we are in- incredibly dependent on each other. And, you know, to allow your, you know, herd to die from, you know, starvation or, or from thirst is hurting no one more than me. And so it's not entirely, you know, I mean, there's some give and take, yeah. you know. It's not it's not just about me, definitely not. I mean, in fact, how I was brought up was, you know, you think of others first. Yeah. And uh, and you're grateful for what you have. I, I try to live that way still.
0: Wow, what a beautiful... I, I just want to ask you about your grandmother really quick, because I know obviously from the stories you've told us that she was a big influence in your life, and she oh, yeah. set you she on. She still is,
1: and she's been gone for 30 years.
0: Well, can so can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, even from sharing a bed with her whenever you were growing up to, you know, what she still does in your life now.
1: Yeah, you know, she, she, she was this very, very small woman. You know, she wasn't five feet tall. I think she was 4'11" and uh she you know lived a a really hard life at the turn of the century and she was born in 1899 and uh and so she had a chance to see transition in her life and uh you know from from being raised out in you know a member of a family that were sheep herders all of the women were responsible for the farm because the men were out with the sheep and so They didn't rely on men. They were incredibly self-sustaining women who did everything. My grandmother could build. She was a carpenter. You know, my grandmother had, there was absolutely nothing that needed to get done in my existence that my grandmother could not do. And what that was for me was this incredible role model who said, you know, if you're willing to work for it, you can do or have anything you want. But you have to work for it. No one's gonna give it to you. And so you engage. And that's, you know, why when everything, you know, when an opportunity comes your way, you don't say no. You know, you jump in and you roll up your sleeves and you do the work. And then the reward will come. And it's never from where you think it is. It's always from someplace else. But it always comes. It's if you're willing to give out into the universe, everything that you've got, it rewards you. It's just it's just a law of life. It really does work. So, you know, she, she was um, a mom for a lot of people. So when, when my grandfather, um, my grandfather was married to her first cousin and uh, she died in childbirth on when her fourth child was, was being born. And so they sent my grandmother to take care of the baby. And in fact, it was an arranged marriage because my grandfather was a sheep herder. And so who was going to take care of the kids? There were three little kids in the house and a baby. And so uh, my grandmother was 19, which in those days was an old maid. You know, she'd not married. My my grandmother um, went to go take care of the children and ended up married. You know, she got married to my grandfather and had, you know, I had 14 of her own children on top of, The children, you know, the uh, four children that she was taking care of that were 14. And then there were a couple of grandchildren that she ended up raising. And and, um, so, you know, there were, give or take, usually 21 children running in the house of all ages, right? So the older ones helped take care of the younger ones. And that's how you ran a farm back then. And, And all of the boys, the men, were always off, you know, with the sheep. Once they were old enough, the boys would go, too. And the boys could go to school. The girls weren't allowed to. My grandmother did not attend school, ever. My grandmother was not literate. She taught herself how to read from a Bible and could write her name. But she was the most brilliant woman I've ever encountered, and she knew everything. And so, you know, you you learn. You see that example, and you learn. And she was so adamant about us in our education about us reading. And we read aloud at home all the time. And we had, you know, these, so my grandmother was a part of the uh, Rosary Society. And so she would have this, um, it was the Holy Family that would come. It was in a little chapel, you know, this tiny little portable chapel that would go from home to home all month long. So there were 30 people that were assigned to this one saint. It was a, an icon. And uh, and when it came to our house, there was a ritual that would happen. There was a welcoming song that you would sing. Then you'd you'd kneel in front of it and, and light candles and pray the prayers all in Spanish. I lived in a in a very I lived a bilingual life. While I was little, it was Spanish only at home. My first language was Spanish, and then when I was old enough to go to school, then of course at school it was English only. Mm-hmm. And so I was speaking English and writing and reading in English uh, at school. And speaking Spanish and writing and, and, you know, reading in Spanish at home. What an incredible gift that was. To be bilingual in this day and age is, is to be, you know, worth two people. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, as far as work is concerned. Right. So, um, but then, you know, it was, it, it was hidden. Nobody, you know, wanted, I mean, I know a lot of people in my own family, my own first cousins, who can't speak Spanish.
0: I just learned recently about the discontent that there was for a lot of Hispanic families whenever they first came to New Mexico, or, you know, even 50, 60 years ago even, who didn't speak Spanish because it was so frowned upon. I didn't know this because, I mean, I didn't grow up here, and I didn't know, and a lot of people who grew up here didn't even know it. But, um, so how did you get around that then? Your family just insisted, you know, we speak Spanish at home, and you My grandmother
1: never spoke English.
0: So it was just, you had yeah, to. Okay,
1: <laughs> That's, I mean, when you're born into a Spanish family and you're speaking Spanish, I mean, you know, it would be disrespectful to speak English in a household where the, a person, you know, was present and did not understand. Yeah. So now, mind you, by the time I was, you know, 12, I realized my, there was nothing my grandmother did not understand. <laughs> <laughs> she understood every word we were saying. But for her... It was about culture. It was about saving the culture. She saw what was going on in society. You know, I still remember when there were, were people coming when Head Start started. So I was born in 1965. It was around 1968 or 69. A knock on the door came. They were, tr- they were soliciting, trying to, you know, do um, an assessment to figure out how many children were in the neighborhood because they were just starting a Head Start program. And my grandmother would not let them in the door. And I never quite understood, because she was such an advocate for education, but she would not let him in the door. And what she said was, te van a quitar tu cultura. They're going to take your culture. And she was right. That's exactly what happened in school. They didn't allow Spanish to be spoken. They frowned upon, you know, all of our um, traditional, you know, our food, you know, uh, our way of thinking, uh, because with in school once you get into school you're indoctrinated into a system and uh and so what she was seeing and what she believed was actually true they were they were trying to you know americanize us in her words um you know, I, I never felt like i was uh as American as I am until I visited Spain and realized I'm a complete American. (laughs) I'm like, there is nothing Spanish about me. I mean, I might speak the language, and I I do have the— but our culture and what we were raised in in, you know, that time, and uh, obviously before that time, before my time, others uh, prior to me, uh, that whole Spanish colonial kind of way of living— doesn't exist anywhere else in the world anymore. Our language even is, it doesn't exist anymore. Our archaic Spanish language in Spain is no longer spoken. You know, they speak modern Spanish. And so when we traveled to Spain and we were speaking Spanish, everyone was trying to figure out where the heck we were from. They could not figure it out. They knew it was at Mexico because we don't have that, we don't use those same words. You know, a lot of the words that we use are archaic. No one else uses them anywhere anymore. They're out of style and uh and we use them still here, because of the isolation, so it's it's a really interesting place uh to to study when you're looking at you know how languages advance and change over time and uh and even in Mexico, which you know for a long time a heavy Spanish influence in Mexico, but of course um the Mexican language is, is now much more modern, and even the the words that are archaic the Spanish words that are archaic. And are still in use in northern New Mexico are no longer used in Mexico either. Maybe wow. in some tiny little villages, but none that I've ever encountered. And I've traveled quite a bit in Mexico, right. so interesting.
0: That is. It must have been really conflicting, though, and like really confusing growing up in that way. Whenever you started going to school, it it,
1: it was, it was, and it was it was confusing. I'll tell you when it, when it was like a big aha moment. Uh, I was so. Um, Probably in the fourth grade, third or fourth grade, and um, Schoolhouse Rock was like the big thing then. Yeah. And uh, and I knew all the songs because we were a musical family. Everybody played a musical instrument or sang in my family, everyone. My grandfather played the violin. And uh, so, you know, we were all, all of the new, I guess there was like one new episode that would come out every year. And so this new one that particular year, the new song we were learning on Schoolhouse Rock uh, was uh, rocking and rolling and and Splashin' and splashing is about America, right? And it's about the pilgrims. And it's like, all of a sudden, it dawned on me, that has absolutely nothing to do with me. I My story is different, and I'm an American. And so why am I not being celebrated? Why am I not visible in this space? It was really interesting, but it was like a boom in the head, like all of a sudden it's like whoa, you know. And even now, I mean, all of, as we've grown up, I mean, now people are starting to recognize New Mexico as an actual state. For a long time, we were, we were. I don't know what they thought we were, but they definitely <laughs> didn't think we were Americans. And it's like you know, there's so many stories like like mine. And mine my, my story, our story, is not a unique story. There's a lot of you know we have. America is the melting pot, and yet only one story is told. And so that has to change. It's part of what I like being involved in all of these things in. It's like, you know, find your voice. And don't be afraid to stand up and and speak your truth. I mean, I all of a sudden, when that hit me, it was like, oh, my God, this is, like, not right. I mean, I was, like, nine years old, and I knew that. And so I became an activist. What else are you going to do? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of all those steps that you take in your life, I think. It's, you know, it's a culmination of who we end up becoming. And luckily for me, my grandmother was many people. I mean, you know, she, she was a mom and she was a gardener and she was a farmer. But she was also, you know, a financial expert. She ran the farm. I mean, she knew exactly what needed, what needed to be done. You know, she understood, you know, she was a community organizer. Uh, you know, she was a chef. And and it, it was wonderful to see all of these different facets of her life. Uh, she was incredibly good at a lot of them. But I also saw her learning new things. Even, you know, by that point, she was in her 60s when I could, when I remember her. You know um she was already in her la- in her late sixties, and she was still learning you know it it's a it's a great example to to actually be raised by somebody who's like that, and that goes for my mother as well. I mean my mother did absolutely everything she needed to do and still found time to make sure that we got what we needed out of you know life uh, all of the fun stuff we wanted to be participating in and, and, and you know she all the fundraisers for the band you know the band boosters, my mom was the, always the first one to sign up. And she had no time, and yet she always did it. And that's, I think, where that community spirit, where that need to be involved in community and to volunteer your time or your talent, it's always been part of you know who we are. And so I don't know any other way of doing it. Yeah, it's kind of the just an example. I just, yeah. I hope it 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 holds out with my son. So far, I think it. Yeah, I think it will. Okay.
0: Wow. That's some DNA to pass down, (laughs) Lydia. It really is. Well, um, we're coming in close to our time, but there were two things I wanted to ask you about. And the first one, um, we obviously have your cookbook that you've written that uh, had a lot to do with the influence from your grandmother, obviously, and growing up on the farm and and your culture. Um, Any
1: book, another
0: book coming in time? Maybe memoirs, perhaps? (laughs)
1: I actually, for a while, was thinking that uh, there would be another cookbook that was going to be really more focused on kids and kids in the kitchen. And uh, But I've, what I've come to find out after the pandemic and, and just you know really being able to be in a bookstore again, which thank right. God. I know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I missed my calling. I could have been a librarian easily. <laughs> I just love being in a library. But there, I think that, that that need has been met. I think that that's okay, that, you know, it's it's not really going to be something that's on my horizon. Uh, I've moved past that now, and I, I know that there will be another one. I don't know what it will be about yet. It's still kind of, you know, moving around in my head. Um, I had this grand idea that I wanted to do this book that was called uh, was going to be called uh, Las Comidas del Camino Real, which is the foods of the uh, the Royal Road and um, and talk about the migration of food uh, from the time that the Spaniards arrived in Mexico and all the way through Mexico and into New Mexico, and talk about that whole, um, you know, okay. the, the Camino Real and, and how the food is connected and, and how, um, you know, some of the ingredients traveled from Spain through Mexico and into New Mexico. A lot of it has to do with our um, indigenous tribes and, and Native Americans. Uh, and their contributions to the to these different types of foods. And so I've done quite a bit of, of research actually and and uh and I don't know that it's that it'll happen. I'm hopeful that it'll happen. It seems like there's I don't know if there's a market for it, mind you, but there's a need for it for me. I, it's like something that I started that I feel like I need to finish. Yeah. So whether it hits the actual, you know, uh, bookstore shelf or not is is still a question mark but I think the research and the, and the actual work of it will still get done. Um, and then there's the whole thing about a, living a, a self-sustainable life and that I think is where my focus is really on with regard to a, a new book yeah. is really how do you do that? Um, it, it's kind of second nature to me because I haven't done it any other way but as I am sharing, I have a, a pretty large following on Facebook, uh, because of the cookbook. And I think last time I looked it's like two hundred and seventy thousand followers. Wow. It's crazy. I know yeah. I just can't, can't get over it. But a lot of the questions that come from those folks which are have been very, very influential, uh and is such a great support uh, network for me. Uh but a lot of their questions are about how we do it and what are the, you know, the actual, you know, how to's, yeah. steps, and how you can set that up and actually make it happen. And so I've been thinking about that while we're doing it, uh, you know, all that 45 days yeah. and, uh, and trying to process it in my head as it's, as it's working. If I was doing this and I was a novice and had never, you know, seen a chicken coop mm-hmm. before, what were the elements that were really critical to include so that somebody wouldn't stumble um, so I'm working through all of that stuff now. Uh, so that's that's a potential. Wow.
0: I, I would read both of those. <laughs> I, I really would. I would read both of those. Um, my last thing, so, so Robin Roberts is a personal hero of mine. And in learning about her and her mother, just through her books and her speaking, um, you know, her mother always says, everybody's got something. Right. And make your mess your message. And so in thinking about that what is your message and how do you carry that into the work that you do every day
1: i think it's probably a a message that has been communicated down through the women in my in my family probably you know at least for you know four centuries is you can have anything that you want if you're willing to work for it i think that's the message you know it it all comes from work, you know, and it's not necessarily the, the brute force work that we do on the farm, which it maybe it could be, but it's all of the work. It's the thinking through it. It's really understanding what it is you want, prioritizing your life, and then going for it. It's being fearless. It's, you know, understanding what you want and being, and not having fear to chase it. And it's hard to do. You know, it's easy to say, mm-hmm. it's really hard to do because we are creatures of habit. It is very, very easy for us to just keep doing what we're doing. We know how to do it. We know what the results will be. There's no surprises. But you don't grow from that. You you grow from being uncomfortable, as my uh, assistant reminded me this morning. (laughs) Donovan, I just love her. She, uh, We were t- just talking about this. I'm like, I always feel uncomfortable when I'm doing these kinds of things. She's like, oh, you're good at it. I'm like, oh, but, you know, it's just always, you know, makes you just step a little bit outside your comfort yeah. zone. And she said, you know, it's discomfort that helps us grow, and it's the truth. Um, you know, we were talking about finding our voice and, uh, and about when I realized that I had a different voice from, you know, every other nine-year-old girl in the country and, and, and really blew me away, you know, in that second. And, and then not having fear to speak your truth. You know, that's, you know, my truth is not the same truth as your truth. You know, what we have traveled and, and what we have done and what we have experienced and what we've inherited in our lives is completely different. But they're of equal value. You know, what you have to contribute is equally valuable to what I have to contribute. No more and no less. And it's the same for every human in this, on this earth. You know, we all have a story, and we all have something of incredible value to share. And I think it's a disservice to have to make people feel like they're not worthy or like what they have to say isn't important because it's not true, first of all. But, you know, it diminishes others, and it, it, it creates a, a situation of, um, you know, inequality which i think is just not it's not right i i try really hard to make sure that you know when i am present in a group whether it's a volunteer group or whether i just am invited to dinner that there's time for everybody's voice mm-hmm. you know that that person who hasn't said anything at the other end of the table is invited to say something and you know is asked a question is brought into the conversation because it's in, it's incredibly important, and all of us will learn from it. So, I don't know if that's words of wisdom or not, but uh, but it, they were words of wisdom to me, definitely. That you know, I I never I never questioned that I would be able to travel all over this world, even though I came from the poorest of the poor. It was never a question. I always knew I would, because I wanted it, and because I was willing to work for it.
0: You certainly have lived that example. Lillian and I really appreciate what you said. And to be honest with you, the fact that everybody has a voice and everyone has something of value—that's the whole point of doing this. <laughs> and so I really appreciate you taking your time out of your very busy schedule <laughs> to be here and to do this. And that
1: really. Oh, it's my pleasure. Really, it was so always—it's always such fun to talk with you. I, it really is
0: too. And I honestly—I feel like I gained <laughs> so much jewels and wisdom, like you said, just just from from this. And I wish that I had you know three more hours to talk to you because i feel like you have so much so many stories in your life and it's just it's beautiful it's it's, it's thanks it's, i, I want to come to your farm i want to learn from please you. please come know, there are um you know all right that's gonna do it for this week But join us next week as we hear from Senator Leo Jaramillo. And until then, have a great week. We'll see you soon.